looking to start a podcast but don't know where to begin? Look no further. The team at Dodge Media Productions has 20 years of experience as podcast listeners and observing the industry and eight years experience in podcast production. We can help you take your podcast from idea to fruition and we'll make the process seamless and easy. We'll help you with everything from recording and editing to hitting the charts on Apple Podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Contact us today and let's get started. DodgeMediaProductions.com You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. And before we get started talking about this week's film, E.T., I just want to announce that Dodge Media Productions has partnered with the Bag and Baggage Theater here in Hillsborough, and we are putting on the first annual Hillsborough Film Festival. So if any of you out there are filmmakers, student filmmakers, you know a filmmaker, please uh, look in the show notes for the link to submit your film. Right now we are accepting short films. We have two categories, a micro short, which is under five minutes, and then a short film, which is five to 15 minutes long technically five minutes, one second (laughs) to 15 minutes. Who knows? Your your film could be selected for our festival. We have a wonderful roster of esteemed judges. We have college professors, an acclaimed director from Australia, Brian Trenchard-Smith, who Quentin Tarantino says is one of his favorite directors. We have somebody who used to work for DreamWorks and Pixar, Cindy Cosenzo, and the artistic director of the Bag and Baggage Theater, Nick Whitcomb, is um, are our judges. So please enter your film in our festival. And if you are under 18 or know a student who has a film that's under 18, we have a code to submit for free. So once again, look in the show notes, I will have my email there. And if they email me and ask me for that code, I will give it to them and they can submit their film to our festival for free. So thank you for that little side conversation, I guess, or that little interjection. Yeah. But before we get started, should we talk about the octopus in the room? We should. We're happy to announce that we have a new member of our podcasting team, uh, his name is Taco, spelled like the Japanese word for octopus, not like the Mexican food. And he is currently residing very close to my feet. He's an almost one-year-old Rhodesian Ridgeback. So there may, we now have two dogs. You, you probably didn't know it, but we used to always have what we called pod dog. Uh, our older dog, Thor, would often come in while we were recording, and he was such a good dog that... You guys never knew he was here. Our editor, Jeff, used to know he was here, but... Taco is still learning that tranquility, so there may be some occasions where you hear him. So we just thought we'd let you know. Big interruptions, I will obviously edit out, but if he kind of stretches or or something uh, while we're <clears> speaking, <throat> that's much harder. So you might hear him from time to time, but we will hopefully make it a pleasant experience as always. Let's get started. We're going to talk about episode one. This is episode 153. 
And in 1982, a little film came out called E.T. The Extraterrestrial is the official title. So I mentioned this in our newsletter, which you can subscribe to to get this fun commentary in your email inbox, that I have seen it styled both with a colon behind the E.T. and before the Extraterrestrial and without one. I may have also seen a, a hyphen. So the question I have for the grammarians in the audience is, should it be, sh- should the extraterrestrial be considered a subtitle and be behind a colon or not? Or a comma, maybe ET comma, the extraterrestrial, like you might say, you know, Bobcat comma, the Mexican dude. I don't know. It's just, it's like, there's, I, I thought that was interesting. I always remember it in my mind as having a colon between the ET and the extraterrestrial, but I don't think it does. There you go. For all you... Uh, Grammar detour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the director of ET is Steven Spielberg, who previous to this, we knew for Jaws in 75. Oh, so he did some stuff. <laughs> yeah. And Close Encounters <laughs> in 77. Very close to this film, kind of. Both mm-hmm. alien movies. Mm-hmm. In 79, he did 1941. John Belushi. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then just the year before this, in 81, he did Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, he was coming on a high. Yeah. So I didn't go into much after that. I figure most of you have heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that little Stevie Spielberg. <laughs> Something will come of him. It stars Dee Wallace, Henry Thomas, Peter Coyote, Robert McNaughton, Drew Barrymore, and a very young C. Thomas Howell and Erica Alaniac, mm. who doesn't even get a name. She's credited as Pretty Girl. Well, you know, that was she that was her, her job and her, her title, I guess. <laughs> the DP was Alan Devow, and he did Empire of the Sun in 87 and then Bugs in 91. I don't believe that's a bug's life. So, <laughs> Is Empire of the Sun also Spielberg, I thought? Maybe? Anyway. I do feel like there was a connection. And because I didn't uh, note films after 82, yes, I do believe that is uh, Super case. fan Dustin text me who directed Empire <laughs> of the Sun. The writer is Melissa Matheson. And I, I didn't know anything else she did might have been it not that that's a bad thing i mean as i understand she was dating harrison ford during raiders the lost ark so she basically spielberg i think talked about it out loud and she typed it up and that's why she has the writing credit yes i think down in my trivia we watched this a bit ago so i forgot but yes i do believe that um the film's concept was based on an imaginary friend that spielberg created after his parents divorce. And so he was telling her about it. And so she wrote the script. Yes. Thank you for bringing it all together. Some of the filming locations were Tahunga, Northridge, uh, the Redwood national park is where the, you know, the aircraft Mm -hmm. lands and they're out in the, the, any of the forest scenes were that Culver city, Fort Dick. Do you, have you ever heard of Fort Dick (laughs) from being, no, my dad had a fort named after him. I know. That's what I was thinking. Uh, in the San Gabriel Mountains, Crescent City, Granada Hills, and Porter Ranch were some of the filming locations. The synopsis for this film is a troubled child summons the courage to help a friendly alien escape from Earth and return to his home planet. 
we, I have a few taglines. A lot of them, well, let's just. <laughs> we'll get into them. He is afraid. He is totally alone. He is three million light years from home. There's a little rhyme there. Nah. And then the other one is like a Steven Spielberg film. That doesn't really feel like a tagline. <laughs> the extraterrestrial in his adventure on Earth. Kind of on the nose, but not really catchy. Mm-hmm. And then the next one is his adventure on Earth. And then there's the mystery, the suspense, the adventure, the call that started it all. Ooh, somebody really liked to rhyme when they were coming up with taglines. Dr. Seuss worked for the studio. <laughs> so, and then on the 1985 re-release, <clears throat> the story that touched the world. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting that you bring that up because this is one of like the highest grossing films of all time. Mm -hmm. I think it was playing in theater for like a year or something ridiculous, just unbelievably long. I saw it in the theater. As I mentioned previously, I did call out at a certain point to the screen. That is the only time I think I have ever called out to the, you know, basically diegetically to the character and rewatching it. I was like, boy, I, this isn't the movie I remember. You mentioned when we rewatched it just a couple weeks ago that you forgot how long it was. And I remember when we had the boys watch it, our sons, when they were in like grade school, I was like, oh my God, this movie is so long. 97 minutes, including credits. Should be the mantra, but this one was over two hours without credits, right? Yeah. So yeah, act two bogs down. And I do remember this from when I was like, I, I would have been 13 or 14, I think. When, when I saw this in the theater, I do remember that kind of arc where the government people come up and, and E.T. is in, in like the, the iron lung, which, uh, we never saw Helen Hunt come by. So a totally different film, but it was, I don't want to say boring, but it was totally different, right? As a kid, even I remember I didn't engage with that as much, right? as I did with the motocross bike chase and them flying in the air and, you know, dressing up and the different things, those were more home alone. Like, and then that, that little bit there was, it's kind of like reminded me of the first happy feet film where halfway through it takes a super dark turn. ET actually pulled out of that dive, but it's still, uh, to me, it was much, much different. And I remember as a kid sitting in the theater being kind of like, wait, what? Mm hmm. It, like you said, it just, it does bog down right there. A couple things that I did remember is the story of him using the Reese's Pieces. They actually reached out to M&M's and M&M said, no, thank you. We don't want to be in your movie. <laughs> and I think afterwards they were pretty sorry that they didn't, you know. Is that a whoopsie doodle? Yeah, I think so. Um, you, And I'm going to interrupt myself kind of the train of thought I was going on because you mentioned... The, you know, like the most grossing, the top grossing film. When have we ever seen a film re-release like three years after it came out? Almost never. Right. I mean, like there've been 10, 15, maybe 20 year anniversaries. And that's not even like a broad release. That's just one of these fathom events that happens, right. you know, yeah. in a few theaters around the country. But this one, three years later, had a re-release. That's almost unheard of. I looked up if there was a documentary about the making because I just figured by this having, you know, this much time go past that there probably would have been. And there are a handful and a number of them. And I didn't get a chance to watch any of them before this recording. So I will 
probably try to watch a couple, but I will definitely put some in the show notes. But I was reminded as I looked up, you know, is there an E, is there a documentary about the making of E.T.? The film Atari Game Over, a documentary from 2014 came up. And it's this amazing documentary about the story of the E.T. game that was made for the Atari system and just kind of, I won't spoil it, like all the twists and turns that that this game and I guess the company of Atari took. Yeah, there was so much merchandise for this. This was after Star Wars, but, and of course, Spielberg knows Lucas, but this was, I think, uh, very similar in that regard, in that there was a tremendous amount of merchandising that, that also pumped up I think the film's gross, but also its place in our memory. And I was thinking about it at the time, the, the character, the alien character was groundbreaking, right? I think it was amazing what they did. And it's still that part holds up, but I think there's been things since where we don't necessarily maybe view it with the same thing, because you could argue that there's a direct lineage from, E.T.'s character and Groot from the, you know, Marvel movies. Oh, yeah. So kick us off. What is the pickup line for E.T.? Okay, this is a guess here because I couldn't really understand what was being said. So I think that the first line of dialogue we actually hear is from Steve the Game Master. You take an arrow to the chest for 10 damage. Right. So the film has quite a long opening. It's like... The night sky panning down to the spaceship. We see all the aliens moving in the background. We see their heart lights turning on. There's a bunny in one scene. And you don't know if the bunny is going to take some damage. <laughs> yeah. The bunny is going to take some Ten damage. damage. right? They are sampling. They're taking like saplings. Um, so, you know, almost like they're studying our planet or something. You see E.T. looking creatures walking around you hear them breathing and then it kind of goes into the, um, Oh no, there's, there's a bunch of pickup trucks that show up. There's men running. Well, I, I assume the, the body structure looked more masculine running around kind of chasing. I thought it was interesting because you only saw them from like torso down. (gasps) Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. I was going to bring that up. I read in the trivia on IMDb, everyone can read this, that supposedly Spielberg did that to make it like the audience was a child because children interact with adults from their navel, right? But I also noticed there's the character who is only credited as Keys. The lighting guys always made sure there was a spotlight on that key thing, which at the time was, I think... Not uncommon. I think we all knew somebody whose brother had one of those things with their keys on it. They worked at a gas station generally. But now I I, I think if kids nowadays watch that, they would not understand. They would think that was a special purpose device that that character had, where for us it was just like, oh, yeah, somebody, some people had their keys there. So these men are chasing, Mm -hmm. and we see one of the extraterrestrials kind of running to make it to the ship, and kind of in order to save the ship as a whole, the person that's, or I mean the the extraterrestrial that is on the ship kind of makes the choice that, sorry, pal, 
we got to leave you and they, and the door closes and the ship flies away. And so leaving one of the extraterrestrials on earth. And so he, um, or it, I guess they have a, um, they emit a loud screeching noise. And then that's when we go into the Dungeons and Dragons game in the house. Yeah. And then there's that. So I did think that that line arrow to the chest, Mm -hmm. um, because his heart light and he gets six, sick later so it's maybe not totally off but i think that's a stretch i I think this doesn't prove my theory this film is not not consistent with my theory okay i would have given it to you but i uh made note for the cinematography of the use of fog not only outside when they go to look in the shed for what what made the noise and what kind or what threw the ball like the ball comes out towards elliot and so he gets it or he sees it. And so he's curious about what's out there. And I think, does he see it at that point? Cause then he drops the pizza. So he's scared. So he goes back out again. But then I noticed in the house, a lot of use of fog in the house. Right. Also, it, since we're talking about the opening, I think it's interesting that it opens on a black title card that just says E.T. the extraterrestrial then maybe some lead credits, but no, no logo. Right. Oh, you're right. It was just kind of, kind of into the film. And then the opening shot is of a starry sky that then pans down to the forest. Yeah. Which I thought was clever from Spielberg, whoever came up with that shot, because they're kind of, you know, it, it, it's the establishing shot, but it's kind of like two, right? Cause it establishes that he's a spaceman. Yeah. And then it establishes the location where the we're center. actually going to see the film. Yeah, yeah. And unlike a lot of films, E.T. was shot roughly in chronological order. Stephen thought that it would help facilitate the young cast to give more convincing emotional performances. I agree. And that must have been a nightmare, though, kind of (laughs) uh, from a production standpoint. So the plot of E.T., we have themes of kind of family. I think Elliot, you know, he's... He's the middle child. And so, you know, Gertie probably got lots of attention because she was cute and pugnacious, maybe. And then the older child, mom's divorced. So I bet she leans on him mm-hmm. a bit for some responsibility. And so I feel like, and it kind of sets it up in that opening scene because he wants to play Dungeons and Dragons and they don't want you know, his brother doesn't want to let him. And so he tells him like, well, if you go get the pizza, maybe we'll let you. And I think when he comes in, he doesn't let him like, so he did the thing. He went and got the pizza, but so Elliot's trying to find something that is his. And I think he seemed like an inquisitive kind of kid. I think there's themes of, you know, who do you trust? Right. Do you Mm -hmm. trust mom? Do you trust the government? You know, kind of, yeah, this is a uh, Spielberg is a bit of a thought leader in the don't trust the federal government. <laughs> I'll give him that. W- one thing that I'm curious uh, if y- you could find the symbolism or the connection, but I made a note. There are lots and lots of flashlights in this film. Well, I guess just shining. I mean, let's see. I'm just quickly off the top of my head, shining a light on the truth or. Yeah. What Elliot sees, because at first I don't think people believe him. You know, he has right. to. And oh, because and, yeah, because from the very beginning he says there's, he says like there's a creature. He says something, and everybody goes out there, and they when they don't find the extraterrestrial ET, they 
they accuse him of lying and he's making mm-hmm. it up. Yeah, that's as, as as good as any. I mean, if, if, you, if I really want to push hard on it, I could say E.T.'s heart light reminds me of when you would put your hand over your flashlight as a kid. Mm. You know, you kind of had that orangish flesh color. And then if you really want to go far, his buddy George had a movie where people had lightsabers in it. <laughs> and uh, so at that time, we're kids all like big into flashlights because it was kind of like a lightsaber. Yeah, that's a good point because, you know, we all have a flashlight on our phone now and kids get phones, you know, pretty young, like at least eight years old. So Elliot would have had a a cell phone. So, I mean, uh, yeah, he would have had a cell phone. So do we not see flashlights now as much? Was that a big deal to get a flashlight of your own? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. dad had one. It was a big gift and four Christmases. Yeah, it was. <laughs> that kid didn't appreciate it. No, he didn't. So was that kind of a cool, but I like your idea of the heart light. Yeah. I yeah. Like that. So that was just my, you know, it was maybe a bit of a stretch, but I wondered about it. I like it. All right. Character development. How does Elliot change over the course of the film? Does he get braver? Does he get more bold? Does he feel seen? Because oftentimes the middle child is, you know, kind of lost in the wind. Right. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't really see a character development for Elliot. Now, that might be a little bit controversial, but I, I think the movie is kind of about E.T. Really? Because I'm thinking Elliot mm-hmm. orchestrates and helps E.T. He couldn't have gotten home without Elliot. Well, th- there's here's the thing that I consider a tiny bit of a plot hole. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, I'd love to have Tell me. Spielberg and Matheson. Okay, kind of the climax of the film is E.T. levitates a half dozen boys on their bicycles, mm-hmm. right? And flies them a non-trivial distance to meet uh, the ship. If he could do that in the opening scene, why didn't he fly his own ass up into the ship before it left? Mm, you got me there. Well, the door was closed. We see the door closed before... Well, I'm just thinking, why is it a guy with six inch legs trying to run through underbrush when he's being chased by Peter Coyote, just <laughs> levitate and boogie on over there, right? Turn that heart light on. They'd open the door for you. <laughs> okay. So that was just like a bit of a question there. But to me, I think you see E.T. opening up and connecting with Elliot. And so maybe you could argue that that's also partly Elliot's journey too. I don't know. Uh, I really didn't see a lot of character development for this. To me, it was more you had to solve the puzzle of how do we get E.T. home, right? But E.T. is the one who builds the the turntable-based radio device based on a comic that E.T. found and read. So I kind of feel like Elliot drives things along, but I don't see a lot of change, which is maybe not unrealistic given a 10-year-old kid, right? Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. I thought this was kind of cool. Spielberg kept the puppeteers away from the kids during downtime because he didn't want the kids to kind of associate. He wanted them to kind of, I guess, live in that mindset that E.T. was real. Mm. Isn't that kind of cool? Yeah, it would bump them if they ran into E.T. at the craft services table. (laughs) Right, right. 
So do you think they had M&Ms at Crafty or were there Reese's Pieces there no, too? No, only Reese's Pieces. Only Reese's Pieces, yeah. <laughs> I felt like they gave a lot of like some cutesy humorous lines to Gertie. Yeah, that character is interesting because I, I was going to ask your opinion. To me, speaking of direction, maybe Stephen could have had it, directed her to be less loud and less kind of annoying. And I understand that you know, your little brother or sister is always kind of annoying. That's part of the, the trope, the shtick. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of screeching from Gertie that I think we could have done without. <laughs> and then you had mentioned Star Wars. I think just basing this film and realizing that Star Wars, Star Wars was, what, three years prior? Was it 79? 78, 79, I think. Yeah. So and so... Four. Elliot would have, of course, had all of these Star Wars toys. Right. And I just think it's so funny that in today's, you know, time, would George or Disney now allow for those Star Wars toys? Yeah, the crossover. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting you mention that because, of course, it was of the era. And when Star Wars came out, the like Luke and Leia and Han action figures were you know, more rare than gold. You, you couldn't get them. So mm. I had a 3PO and a Darth Vader. So when I played Star Wars, I had a very different plot. It, I, I think, I love to think that I came up with, you know, the protagonist was a gay robot who was seeking to find himself in a world that didn't understand him. But I probably went with a guy with a lightsaber <laughs> and uh, Darth Vader was a misunderstood knight. But it was interesting. We talked about that there was Coke product placement as well as the as the Reese's Pieces, and in his room there are a lot of things that were of that era. Well, the speak and spell thing, the right. toy that yeah. he used to phone home, that mm -hmm. was like yeah. everybody had one of those, or at least all the cool kids did. I don't think I did, but I knew I a bunch did. of friends that had them. I knew one kid who did, and. I, I, I think all kids, we tried to get it to say naughty words or something. And <laughs> of course. It's like, all right, that's it, you stupid punks. Give us the toy. Producer Kathleen Kennedy visited the Jules Eye Institute, the Jules Stein Eye Institute, to study real and glass eyes. And she hired the Institute staffers to create E.T.'s eyes, which she felt were particularly important in engaging the audience. Four heads were created for the filming one as the main animatronic and the others for facial expressions, as well as the costume was made. And so there were a team of puppeteers, like I mentioned before, that controlled his face and the animatronics. And then there were two little people, Tamara Detroit and Pat Billen, as well as a 12-year-old, Matthew Demerit, who was born without legs. And they all took turns wearing the costume, depending on what scene was being filmed. And Demerit, the 12-year-old, actually walked on his hands and played all the scenes where E.T. walked awkwardly or fell over. The head was placed above that of the actor so the actors could see through the slits in his chest. And a professional mime filled the prosthetics to play E.T.'s hands. And the puppet was created in three months at the cost of $1.5 million. That's an amazingly expensive puppet. I know, but he was like a major character of this film. Yeah, that's where I, I don't know if I accurately captured it before, but this was groundbreaking because it wasn't CGI. They did this entirely in camera with practicals. 
Right. And at the time, this was mind-blowing for us. Like, we had seen Ray Harryhausen-style special effects, and those were cool, but you could always tell that it was, you know, stop-motion or miniatures, right? And this was a life-size alien creature that Mm -hmm. we, as the audience, he didn't look like a person. So he didn't look like they just put a short-statured actor in a weird mask. It looked totally different. Right. Spielberg declared that it was something only a mother could love. (laughs) I would agree with that. Yeah, it was kind of a little spooky. But yeah, I remember I even had like a vinyl. And when I say vinyl, I mean it was like like a stuffed animal. But because it was probably about 8 to 10 inches high and it was like an E.T. And so it was kind of like a little, you know, like Mm, a stuffed toy. But but it was the skin was vinyl, not like fur. I believe I know it had an, a finger extended and I think it was just painted red. Mm. So it became a beloved creature is what I meant, what I meant by all that. So speaking of Spielberg's only a mother could love, mm-hmm. uh, I, I would not call myself a very talented graphic artist. I can do a mean stick figure and that's about the end of it. However, do you remember in, in school they'd make you put a cover on your the book they assigned you? For class. Yes, yes. And so um, I used brown paper bags, not because I couldn't get others, but because that's what the cool kids did. I wanted to look cool. Right. Which is weird, but it was also a canvas. And on the back of my English, the, the brown paper bag on my English book, I guess as a freshman, I drew a picture of, of basically E.T.'s face. It was really accurate, relatively speaking, but I gave him fangs. <laughs> <laughs> So little, little, I, I didn't go into the horror genre, but uh, if you'd looked at that book, I'm sure the teachers thought this kid's, <laughs> this kid's weird. We got to get him out of here. All right. Was there any head trauma in E.T.? I'm going to go ahead and give you one. And that's after E.T. follows Maggie the Basset Hound to drinking beer. <laughs> he does a pretty good face plant. <laughs> so I'm going to count that one. That's funny. I don't believe there was a smooch. Smoochy, smoochy, smoochy. I did not make note of a smoochie. All right. How about some driving? I do believe there were some vehicles. Okay. There were quite a few vehicles. So I have no confirmation that Steven Spielberg is a Mopar fan, but I will mention that the the bad guys who are chasing him only drive Fords and Chevys. No Dodges were were involved by the bad guy. Good. You notice that the pizza delivery is a 79 VW Rabbit. Now... I'm not real sure about that casting choice because a two-year-old car, I, I, I just think that's a little much for someone who's delivering pizzas. At that time, I actually think a VW Bug from 10 years previous would have been a more accurate casting for the pizza delivery guy. It just seemed a little a little expensive for someone who's delivering pizzas. Mary, the mom, played by Dee Wallace, she drives an 81 Audi 5000, so that's in essence a brand new car. So she's got three kids. I think she's divorced, not widowed by implication, mm. if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Yes, yes, he is. And she's got a big house and she can afford an Audi. I don't know. I don't know what she does, but she, she gets paid well. She took that fella to the bank. She did. Maybe Those key, cleaners. Maybe that was keys he, the whole time he was just trying to get <laughs> his money back. You notice that the government stooges, when they show up, they're all in Ford Fairmonts, including... A Ford Fairmont station wagon with the light bar atop. I don't think I've ever seen it in real life, not a movie, a cop car that's a station wagon. 
right? Mm-hmm. I don't know why. No, they, no, they just I, never did it. They always did I the agree. sedan. And then lastly, which I thought was kind of fun, there's a part where there's a white 82 Ford of Conaline van and it, it goes, uh, there's like a chase or something and it goes into the park, right? Mm-hmm. And you can see as it does in the wide, as it drives into the park where they built a little ramp to get it over the curb. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I mean, I'll give them that. And I'm, I thought I laughed when I saw it because I thought of our friend who says, if they notice the ramp for the van, we've <laughs> lost them. Well, but I did. So we go to the numbers. Let's go to the numbers. All right. On the way, I'm going to tell you that, like you mentioned, the film was a smash hit at the box office. It surpassed Star Wars to become the highest grossing film of all time, a record that it held for 11 years until Spielberg's own Jurassic Park surpassed it in 1993. E.T. was near universally acclaimed by the critics and regarded as one of the greatest films of all time which is reflected in the Rotten Tomatoes score of 99% from the critics. Audiences don't necessarily agree. Maybe it's for that little dip in the momentum Mm -hmm. in the middle, like you suggested, because audiences give it 72% and it's IMDb score is not even an eight. It's 7.9 out of 10. I would say the uh, IMDb score is probably accurate. It's a good film. I don't know if I'd say one of the hundred best. Mm-hmm. Really? Oh, I definitely. Well, I guess best. I guess I'm probably bleeding a little bit of nostalgia and mm-hmm. all of that into it as well. And but at the time, I probably would have given it a ten. Mm-hmm. Like when it came out, I was I was big into it. The budget was ten point five million. We know one and a half of that was <laughs> yeah, from ET. So, uh, the budget for the film was nine million, with the one and a half <laughs> thrown in there for the the puppet. It's just under two hours at one hour fifty five minutes. It's rated PG and it is listed as an adventure family sci fi movie. Domestically, it made four hundred and thirty nine million. So definitely made its money back, as we mentioned with the top grossing. Adjusted for today, that would be like a film domestically making $1.4 billion with a B. And I'm guessing Spielberg had points on that one. Probably. He did quite well. They also did well in the Oscar race. This Universal Pictures Amblin Entertainment film won four Oscars for Best Sound, Best Effects, Sound and Visual Effects, and John Williams won for Best Music. It had 52 other wins and 38 other nominations. Among them is a Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture and John Williams won for Best Original Score. So that just about does it for this episode of E.T. Next week, we will be watching Rocky. So stay tuned and never forget. Dodges never stop and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. 